Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. It's hard to come up with new ways to introduce uh, our show, Lizzie. Um, that was a different one. Did you like it? I feel like they're all a little bit different and yet all the same. I like consistency. Would you, it's good. Would you, would you like it more if I did the exact same intro every time? No. No, because yeah. I like to be kept on my toes. That's right. I keep yeah. you on your toes. Um, so we did a whole episode already with Dr. Jeremy Faust that you're about to hear. Uh, we did an interview with him uh, last week, and it's a great interview. And he has some really great insights into COVID. But after we recorded it, um, President Trump was taken ill with the uh, COVID. So we are going to keep the interview because it's still very good and there's a lot of great information in there, but we figured we should at least discuss it here. So we scrapped our original intro and now we are re-recording a new intro for this um, because we want to stay topical and because we have a lot of thoughts on this um, and we haven't had a so chance to talk happened. about it. We haven't had yeah. chance. Yeah. So much has happened. It's been like so three much, days. So much happens every day. It's like, you know, we're doing, the, we used to do an episode once a month. Now we're doing it every week. We're just going to, fuck it. Let's just do daily episodes now. Oh God. Um, it's exhausting, it's just, isn't it? <laughs> it's just so much. I think we interviewed him on like Wednesday or Thursday. And then this information came out, I think midnight or 1am on Friday morning. And now you guys will listen to it this week. And it is, there's so many questions I have. And I think Sarah at Live said it best. Like what if science and karma had a baby. I think this is the result. I think Trump getting COVID is the fusion of these two things. Um, just so a, many questions. As a quick aside, I was a little let down by that episode. I was too. I love Chris Rock and he did a great job. I giggled a couple of times, but I had really high, high expectations, yeah. which you just can't go into. I've been watching it for all 30 plus years like yeah. you just can't go into that show with high expectations no so. for sure for sure okay, um, okay. more okay, importantly was, more importantly <laughs> let's talk let, let's talk about this so um first i know you have something that you wanted to share and we haven't had a ch chance to talk about so <laughs> tell me tell me about what you were thinking uh you know when the president gets sick i've learned in the last week um that if he or she feels incapacitated based on the 25th amendment um, they can relinquish control at a time that they de designate and, and resume control at a time that they choose, which is a weird system yeah. if you think about it, right? Because what if you are 
having a psychotic break and you say, I'm not well, but then a day later when you're still not well, you're like, well, I want the power back, you know, but I'm totally not <laughs> like, okay. And I- Like mm -hmm. say you're high on dexamethasone, a steroid <laughs> that's been known to give right. people mania. If, right. if something like that right. or crack, right. right, exactly. And it's just, I think I might've seen it in a TV show like West Wing or Homeland or something, but I had to re I relearn this stuff all the time. But apparently in the last, you know, I think the 25th Amendment was um, ratified in 1967. And I think it's only been implemented or invoked three times. Uh, once for Reagan, twice for George W., the second Bush. And all three of those times, our listeners might enjoy knowing and you might enjoy knowing, that they were all invoked for colonoscopy. So I would like our <laughs> listeners to know that colonoscopy is the greatest risk to our democracy. <laughs> it's the best way to prevent colon cancer and to save lives, but it might be a huge risk to our democracy outside of Trump being the leader, but whatever. Man, I had no idea. Colonoscopies, huh? But I mean, um, that's because I'm assuming it's because they got sedation for the procedures, but that is amazing that that's the only time, like you would think that at some yeah. point they went through some other procedure, did something else right. that required sedation. Yeah. Something, right? Reagan right. was shot. And I don't think that they invoked the 25th Amendment. <laughs> I mean, I think it might've been invoked kind of on his behalf, but I think the president needs to be like awake and alert and saying, I'm invoking the 25th Amendment. So right. I think when he was shot, I don't think he had the ability to sort of declare it, but can you imagine, I thought that was a fun fact. That is a really fun fact. Can you imagine in any possible world, Trump relinquishing power via the 25th Amendment? I just can't see it happening. Or, or, or even through a normal democratic voting process. <laughs> even through voting, I don't see him relinquishing. Anyway, that's a side note. You, but I have a question. Do you yeah. think that Trump now, first of all, Walter Reed, as opposed to, I think the White House probably is all hospital equipment that any one human being could ever want. But now he's in a Walter Reed hospital like that. I don't understand why. But now that he's there, do you think that he might ask Fauci for advice on like how to manage his care? No, not at all. Okay. Would never okay. give him that credit. Um, yeah. But I, I, speaking of his doctors, that I was watching the, um, the conference that his primary care or his, his primary doctor, Sean Conley gave. Did you see that? I, I read about it. I did not. I, I heard it was just a bumbling mess, right? It, it was painful. It was really painful. Because, yeah. I mean, we're used to seeing, like, spokespeople for the president go up there and waffle, evade questions, lie. We're used to that. And to be honest, they're usually pretty good at it. Like, Kellyanne Conway is really good at doing what she does, which is obfuscate right. the truth, you know, make things sort of a, a, a pivot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah. But doctors a little bit not, more gracefully. Yeah, yeah, doctors are not. And it was so clear. I almost felt bad for the guy. Because to be honest with you, like doctors, we don't have that ability. We don't have that guile for good or bad. We don't have that ability to watch him up there trying to backtrack on statements, trying to like say things like, oh, well, I was trying to, you know, uh, co convey this optimistic attitude that, the, that right. the team has. And that's why I didn't tell you all the facts correctly. It, it was so right. painful to watch. And it made me so angry. Right. And, and he was like, uh, he was on oxygen, but I'm not sure if he was. Let me ask the nursing staff. Like, really? You have one yeah, job. Really? Right. You don't know he, if the president's on oxygen. It was so painful to watch. And, and, and I feel for the guy, too, because like, I'm sure getting pressure from the highest office in the world, telling him things like, well, if you tell all the truth, then it, it's a national security risk because... Iran will come after us. Oh, like, like, like really right. like any foreign country at this point is going to be like, Oh yes. Trump is, is incapacitated. Now is our time. <laughs> we can right. never, we can never put one past Trump, but now that Trump's right. incapacitated, now we'll totally pull one over on the U S you know, it's right. so dumb right. to me. Anyways, it, it, I, and it made me wonder if you were put in a position where Trump was like, Dr. Lizzie, I've heard you are the best gastroenterologist around. I want mm -hmm. you to be my tremendous doctor. Will you be my doctor? What would you say in that situation? I think it would be like something you need to recuse yourself because you're like, I've wished you ill for, you know, I don't, I don't actually you don't wish want him ill, but yeah, you don't, don't like him. I mean, it's very yeah, clear. Yeah. I don't, you're a normal right, person. My Right. My politics, I would worry would get in the way and I would have to sit because I feel so, so much 
emotion attached. So I feel like it would be a conflict of interest. I don't wish him ill. I don't want him to die. I really want him to see himself lose in this election <laughs> is my greatest hope. Right. But um, I, uh, yeah, I think it would be, I feel really so strongly about him not being president. And I feel very upset about all the lies that I, I would hate. I don't think that would get in my way of providing good medical care, but I feel like I wouldn't really want that position. And I wouldn't want to lie. I wouldn't want to be asked to lie to the public, which I think being right. his doctor, if you people are to. asking you to lie to the public, you have to at least consider it, if not do it outright. Right. And I, as you know, I'm a terrible actress. You say that as doctors, we are bad. You meet an occasional doctor where you're like, why didn't you become a used car, car salesman? You know, mm -hmm. like, I think we're generally bad at it, but those few that are super shady and well they end up know. on fox news or like having right. a, a show right. that oprah helps produce um right and i no, think I, you know that i'm terrible at that and i would do such a bad job well it, it's interesting i i totally hear you and i agree and i'd have to be like i will do it if i am not forced to lie in any way i just won't right. i won't i won't lie um right they, they probably wouldn't want us um right but but you know people would be like well how could you do it? And I'd be like, well, I mean, you know, when you and I were training, we both trained at county hospitals. I mean, we took care of the worst people. We took, I mean, I routinely took care of people with like swastikas on them. And right. like, and it's almost a matter of pride as a doctor that you are able to provide excellent care for someone you right. really don't like as a person. That's right. like a, a matter of pride that you'd be like, you are not a good person. I can tell by the bad <laughs> things you do, but I choose to do excellent. I give you excellent care. And, right. and that's something we take pride in, you know? Right. We both took care um, of prisoners. I took care of patients from Rikers Island who came routinely to the prison ward. And we were just told, don't ask what they did. But I just assumed they all were murderers and rape, rapists. So, you know, and I think I took very good care of them, you know? Yeah. And, and I just didn't ask questions um, that I don't want. The thing is with Trump is that I, I know so much yeah. about him that I don't want to know. Yeah. And I just think that is a conflict of interest. And I, I think the lying is really the biggest issue. But, yeah. you know, I don't wish him ill will. <laughs> you, you know, the other thing I was thinking about, too, is this care he's getting, how weird it is. Like he's getting this monoclonal experimental antibody medication. Mm -hmm. He's getting dexamethasone, the steroid, even though supposedly he's doing great and he's going to go home tomorrow for some reason, because that makes a lot of sense. And, right. it, and I realized it's, it's one of two options that that's happening now. And they're both really bad. One, he, he's sicker than, you know, he's let on or people have let on, mm -hmm. or he's getting what we call in medicine, the VIP treatment where, you know, Oh, this is a VIP. We have to do everything for them. And I don't, I don't know how much experience you've had with this. I have had some experience being on VIP teams, taking care of VIP patients. They don't necessarily get better care. They get more care sometimes, but that doesn't necessarily mean better. Right. You know what I mean? I sometimes. don't have a lot of experience. Yeah. But when you say VIP medicine, I just think it means undivided attention and, and adoration and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't necessarily mean bad care, but yeah, the implication here is that he's getting all of the drugs, all of the medicine, all of the drugs. Well, that's, that's what happened to Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson did what he had to do to find a doctor that would do what he wanted. And in the end, that did not work out for him. And we've shown, <laughs> we've seen that people who are more satisfied with their care doesn't always mean that they're getting better care. And if you could right. dictate your own care, sometimes you are not doing the right thing for yourself. You're getting right. tests you don't always need, which exposes you right. to risk. And you're getting medications that might be experimental, might have issues, might have a whole other set of risks. So it, the whole thing is, is wacky. And, and now that right. he's on dexamethasone and he's on a steroid that is known to cause mania. I mean, we really do have to like wonder like what happens if uh, and I'm sure there's been a president who's been on steroids at some point for something, but like, yeah. what happens? What happens if they become manic? What if they what if they have mood swings because they're on the right. prednisone? Because you and I both know plenty of patients who have said, "I don't want to go on prednisone. It really made me moody. I didn't like it for totally this and that reason." And oftentimes they'll say it's because they're moody. What? what how do? We, <laughs> what? Who's going to watch him? Who's watching this him for is, this? This is the solution for that. Cave is easy. Don't elect a woman for a president. <laughs> right, because we've proven that men are so capable. Yeah, I, just because it's a funny stereotype, right? With this mood, 
nastiness, a moody bitch or whatever. And I think that's how Hillary got like cornered and stuff. And, um, you know, that's a joke. I think the woman would be a wonderful president. Um, and the other issue is, um, not issue. The other point I, I'm, I'm 99% sure JFK had a Addison's I think, and was yeah. on chronic steroids right, or intermittent right, right, steroids. Right. So he, he yeah. I think that's maybe part of the reason why this 25th amendment became an amendment because it was ratified in 67, which is very soon after, you know, he was murdered, but, um, I probably maybe in relation to that stuff, I don't actually know the details of the history of it. Yeah. That is interesting. What do you think about the fact, of course, by the time this comes out, some whole other crazy shit will have happened, (laughs) but earlier today, he, uh, he decided he wanted to go for a drive and like just drive around his supporters that are outside of the hospital, like cheering him on. So the, the secret service got him into a car, which is like essentially hermetically sealed car because it's designed to keep out like poisonous gas and stuff. And so he's in a car filled with secret service guys. He's not wearing a mask. He's like waving to the crowd and everything as they're driving by. And the secret service guy I saw was wearing one of those N95 masks, not even like a great one, like one of the ones that you get at Ace Hardware with like the valve on it, not wearing goggles as far as I could tell. I mean, very good chance that they're exposed to high levels of yeah. of covid i mean it or coronavirus that's that that is not the sign of it's not to me it it's not a sign of great like control it's not a sign of really quality like mental capacities to not see how that would be weird or a problem that kind of concerns me yeah. a little bit yeah, was it? But was it like a weekend at Bernie's situation where he's like obtunded and someone just like picked up his arm? <laughs> it's like, like waving his arm. <laughs> yeah. No, I no don't know. this is all around bad decision making, like from top to bottom. I mean, these rallies without masks, the Supreme Court um, uh, nomination of Amy Coney Barrett with, um, you know, no masks. And apparently she had had it. So I guess she's not too worried about getting reinfected just so soon after, but who knows? We don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's just, it's just leading bat by bad example. I mean, all of this, like whatever I, you know, I hope he recovers. Uh, you know, but, like, really it's just bother- so he's going to, re- he's going to recover. You and I both have been around medicine long enough that we know that like people like him will recover. That's just how it is. He'll he'll recover. And like, I fear there will be no positive take from this. And the only, the only, he'll use it to his advantage to be like, look, you know, this is what happens. You have, you, we did everything. I was as careful as a human person could possibly be. And which is obviously absolutely not true, but, but he'll say that. And his point will be, well, look, this is what happens. So there's no point in closing down the economy because it's going to happen anyways. And, 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 and look, you'll be fine. I got look, better. I'm fine. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's going to be like, nobody took the other superlatives he'll go with. Nobody took more precautions than me. And nobody's less racist than I, you know, I mean? you'll throw it's that like, in. He, <laughs> right. And you know, I don't know the proud boys. So, but nobody's <laughs> less white supremacist than me. Nobody's anyway, less um, proud of the proud boys, but more proud of himself than being a proud boy. Who did, and then, then it'll, yeah. we'll, cut, we'll cut that part. <laughs> No, that was totally right. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, um, we actually really do have a great episode. I really enjoyed this conversation we had with uh, Dr. Faust. I learned a lot. He is an emergency room physician, writer, blog editor, and all around mensch. And he's going to talk to us about COVID and where we're at in this country and where we're headed. If you haven't already, uh, follow us at Twitter at the House of Pod. Uh, we're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you have any questions you want to email us, uh, hit us up at hopquestions at gmail.com. Thank you to Nadim. Stay tuned. With moments like these, the maternal that you please, holding on to past time, you're suffering today. All right, welcome back. Today we have Dr. Jeremy Faust, one of the coolest names for a doctor, by the way. Um, he is an emergency room physician at Harvard Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's a contributor regularly to Slate. He's written for the New York Times. You've seen him on shows like Rachel Maddow and CNN. He's the editor of the blog Brief 19, a blog by doctors for everyone. And we are 
super grateful to have you come on the show and talk to us a little bit. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And my screaming child in the background is also happy to be here. <laughs> oh man, we're okay with that. We are totally okay with that. L- let's just start. Um, tell us how it's going in the ER. How are you? We're doing fine. I, I'm in Boston and we had, we, we basically, we saw New York when it, when it spiked and we were, we were just assuming that that same horribleness would, would befall us. So we kind of got ready and what, what happened was nowhere near that bad. It was, it was weird and strange and just so much COVID all the time, but we had PPE, we had capacity, we expanded our ICU capacity by a ton ahead of time. If we hadn't done that, we would have been in deep trouble. Um, and I, so I never felt unsafe. It was more just like the twilight zone. Like people would come in, they'd have COVID. The next person would come in with kidney stones. They also had COVID. Mm-hmm. And then someone would come in with like the slightest little thing, COVID. And you know that all those people didn't die um, from COVID. And I don't think the numbers are baked because of that, but it was just more like, oh, wow everybody has this thing. It is everywhere. And then we, we had a long, long shutdown. We suppressed the case counts really well. And we've had a, a pretty quiet summer that's, and I think that is ending. And we are now beginning to see um, an increase in spike because we're a little bit too back to normal. So it's been okay. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I like that term. It is so interesting, right? With COVID slamming New York, and I did a, uh, a week at Bellevue, you know, like it was just so interesting when everyone came in with COVID and COVID became what we call in medicine, an incidental finding, right? Like what you were saying, their primary issue is kidney stones. And for the listeners who are not in medicine, an incidental finding is like the thing that you find that just happens to be there, you know, like someone comes in with a heart attack and they also have HIV. Like it's an incidental finding, but it's an important thing. And that's how COVID became after the first month or two. And in San Francisco, we're the same as Boston. We're just not like uh, blowing up in the same way. And I think it's because we were prepared and earlier. Do you feel like that's the case in Boston? I guess you guys had time to plan. We had time to plan. We have pretty good resources. And ultimately, if you look at the places that did really, really long shutdowns, the, the, the next month did, did well. So if you look at just the length of shutdown in, in several states, that, that more than anything is, uh, is, is what kind of predicts how the summer and fall goes. So we've been, um, I, I think we gave ourselves a really nice pad in a way, a little landing pad, but I think we're beginning to see that we're so squandering it with things like allowing indoor dining. That to me is like one of the big, I know that's one of the biggest drivers yeah. or indicators yeah. that things are going badly. Right. No, they, I think they've shown that already that, you know, if you have COVID, there's a very good chance that you ate somewhere you went out and ate it somewhere at a restaurant. Um, I, you know, here in San Francisco, they've been pretty careful about reopening. I think we've been lucky with our leadership in that regards in the openings of things. And we've done outdoor openings, which seems to be safer compared to indoor dining. But let me just ask you personally, would you go to eat at a restaurant? I mean, obviously, I, I get the sense you wouldn't go inside a restaurant to eat. Would you go to, or do you go to restaurants and eat outside? Outside when it was warmer, yes, I did a couple. I did uh, eat outside a couple of times, right when the case loads were extremely low, and not inside. Yeah, and yeah. it's not the. I'm actually looking. I'm studying this with it with a group at Yale. I'm at Harvard, but we're collaborating. And there's that CDC report about um, having been more likely to have uh, been in, in an indoor dining. What I'll tell you is it's far worse than that. It's, it's actually when behavioral trends track with indoor dining pretty nicely and not things like going to the park. So the, one of the things, one of the mistakes I think we made is we kind of squandered some goodwill with the public by making them do nothing for a month, for a couple of months. Sure. And to say like the, to, to have shut down the beaches and to have shut down the parks was a, was actually a big mistake because people get stir crazy and they want not, and they want none of it. Whereas if we say, look, let's not have indoor dining. We got to be really careful with things like religious services indoors. But in exchange for that, you can go to the park because it's really not a problem. So I think that we've unfortunately sort of um, spent some clout there, and the real drivers are sort of uh, unfortunately now back on the table. Yeah. No, it is an interesting thing, especially with religious services, because I think in San Francisco, it's a controversy. You know, some barbershops are allowed to be open, manicure, pedicure places, outdoor dining, but not indoor religious services. And I think it's actually become kind of a media 
it's gotten attention. And I think to the level of litigation where people are kind of arguing against, you know, religious rights and freedom of speech and freedom to practice religion because of COVID restrictions. And I just, I think it's a really interesting new twist that you're going to allow a barbershop, but not a church. And you can make an argument, you know, that, uh, that I guess you could do out. I've seen outdoor ceremonies. So I'm not sure why that's not more popular, especially in San Francisco where the weather is never super cold, you know? Right. You know, it's, it's true though, what you're mentioning about how we have shifted our opinions over time and sort of like that with the mask argument at first, a lot of us in the beginning were like, eh, I don't know how important the mask is going to be. And, and now we've changed our mind. And what I'm hoping comes from this is that people sort of understand now or learn that that's sort of how science works. You do the best you can with the information that you have. And then when new information comes, you change your recommendations and opinion accordingly, which is what makes science different than in other forms of faith. So I'm, I'm hoping that's passed on to the public. I don't know if it is, because I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people who are just sort of, or at least some subset of people who we just lost. And they're like, oh, I don't know who to believe. Now they're saying this. Now they're saying a vaccine's going to help. Oh, they're the ones that said we couldn't go to a park. Well, so I don't, I don't know. That, that does concern me. But speaking of vaccines, um, how are you feeling? Are you feeling hopeful for something coming out um, in the near future? Or are you thinking more March, April sort of thing? All right, I'll do timeline predictions um, because I'm not stupid. April, in April. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and, but what I will say is that um, coming into this, I didn't know anything about coronavirus vaccine technology because no one did. And the assumption that we would have a vaccine within a year was, was a tough one to, to foresee. But now I think we all agree that it's certainly really possible. And this is important because it, it's, it's, not, it's not obvious. Right, like HIV, we've had for 40 years around, and we can't get an, we can't get a vaccine for that. So maybe the same thing will be true for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Well, it just turns out that that COVID-19, um, SARS-CoV-2, is a real like bastard, right? It's a real. I just hate this virus in so many ways. But one thing that's going in its favor is that it, it doesn't for us is it doesn't mutate all that quickly. So unlike HIV, which has this absolutely terrible uh, spell checker, right? It's constantly making errors and the next iteration of the virus is probably immune to whatever drug you tried to make for it or even or a vaccine. SARS-CoV-2, we've learned, mutates slowly. And so it really shouldn't be that much of a problem, I don't think. And it's just, and another thing that we've learned through this process is what happens when there's a need. So it takes years and years and years to do vaccine trials usually. Why? because you can't recruit people because they won't part, take part in it. That's number one. And number two, you need a huge number of people to be included because the, the prevalence of the virus you're trying to, to wipe out, like Zika, is actually not that high. So you need to have tons and tons of numbers of people just to, just to find enough people who did or didn't get infected to have a signal. Well, what sucks is that we have plenty of, of COVID right now and we have plenty of willing people. To, to do this. So we can get information faster than ever. Um, and I think in, in that way, it's, it's been a success. The, um, the, the, the absolute like screw up is, has been therapeutics. Like the United Kingdom has set this up in a way that we, we frankly should have done ourselves. They, they quickly ruled out that hydroxychloroquine is a waste of time. They quickly ruled in that dexamethasone helps sick our patients. They have quietly dispensed with a few other options that are out there. Like when, when a pandemic hits, you want to have your protocols like ready to go and say, okay, great, we have a problem. Great, here's how we test it. Um, as opposed to what, what we're doing here, which is like sort of, it's all sort of thrown together and it's, it's not organized. So I think that the vaccine story has been a little bit better. Uh, but for next time, I'd like to see ahead of time, sort of a, a pre-IRB approved thing. Okay, when this happens, here's what we do. Here's the action plan and let's roll it out. Because we, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, frankly. Like we really have not utilized our resources. To um, to keep up and to make uh, the best uh, have the, be the best sort of therapeutic research. Yeah, that's that's something I really like about what you do on Twitter and presentations or, or when you're on one of these channels. One thing that you do that's really nice is you approach these new therapeutics in very cautious but realistic ways. And I think as doctors, we tend to want to buy into any potential cure as much as anyone else. And we get excited about it. And 
these things all need to be looked at very cautiously. And the hydrochloroquine is a great example of that. I mean, um, I don't think a lot of doctors bought in too much to that, but there certainly was a subset and people in, in the media and certain parts of the media really clung to that and still do for some reason. Why the far right or not the far right, just the right chose to really go all in on hydroxychloroquine. I don't know. I still don't understand why that is, but it's our job in particular as doctors to tease out the information, make sure it's being done right, make sure these studies are being analyzed right. And it doesn't seem like the studies coming out, at least initially on therapeutics, really were that well done. No, and I think that one of the things that is so um, maddening about this is that you you have to spend all this money and all this time and all these resources to refute an idea that basically was as good or as bad as 50 other ideas. So there's ivermectin and there's colchicine and there's, you know, and every other monoclonal antibody that's supposedly going to fix these things. And all of them had some low, low chance of working. And the one that we had to spend millions of dollars of, and, and all this time and effort of fighting was just the one that Elon Musk and Donald Trump decided they liked. Right, um, right. So I like it. it will, we'll go back to the cautiously pessimistic attitude. Um, well, how do you think that we can come out with this vaccine? I know you don't want to give a timeline, timeline, but how do you think we can come out with this with integrity? I feel like that's my biggest concern. Like how do we have any sort of integrity? <laughs> I just, with all that's been going on, the circus that's been going on, like what you're saying with the hydro- hydroxychloroquine, like yeah. why would anyone like, believe anything? I mean, Fauci, I think has been really a beacon of truth and consistency. And just because he's not on the press conferences anymore doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to him. He just got nominated like times 100 most influential people or whatever. But like, you know, I believe the stuff he says. I, I hope the rest of America does. When a vaccine comes out, are people going to take it? Is there integrity? That's your question. Go. Yeah. And when and exactly what date will it come out? Exactly what date? Yes. It will, <laughs> I have that. I just can't tell you that's embargo. Okay, got it. Uh, Otherwise, <laughs> wink, if wink. I told you that, then I'd lose my access. Right. Um, integrity. I don't even know what that is anymore. The, um, <laughs> the, the FDA has done an ex- exquisitely wonderful job of undermining itself. Like if you had said to the FDA, hey, here's your challenge. Take all the clout you have and light it on fire. <laughs> they couldn't have done better than this. They were like, oh, yes, uh, hold my beer, West Coast fires. We will just light our whole salt, you know, like. <laughs> How to lose a guy in 10 days. They did, that no, was what it, the CDC and the FDA had a competition to be like, look, who, who can ruin years, decades and decades of trust and integrity faster? They can mm-hmm. lose a guy in one day, right? Yeah, <laughs> they won the competition. And, and I think that, um, it, there's a few of us who've been sort of holding everyone to the fire on this and, and basically yelling loud, loudly that um, what they're doing sucks and that what they're doing hurts their own cause for the reason you say, because no one's going to listen to them when it counts. And so it's really, it's really tempting to cherry pick um, your science and to do really unwise things like uh, say that convalescent plasma would save 30% of the lives when that's obviously not true. One day, because uh, it helps you win a news cycle or you know look good and not get fired, and then the next day, everyone knows that that's garbage and that no one trusts you. So then down the road, the vaccine comes, and, and no one's listening to you. Gee, I wonder why. So it's going to come down to us, right? To you and me, and the physicians and providers who are on the front line. What I'll tell you is this: um, people still do trust their doctors, and so that means that we are going to have to look at the data ourselves. And we'll probably agree with somebody like Fauci. We'll probably agree with uh, some people that we all, you know, some of these experts that you probably follow and have talked to on this show. Um, and we'll vet it ourselves. And we'll say to the public, okay, uh, you can believe this one and this one you don't believe. And right. I think that if we have that sort of honest uh, discussion that we always do, we're in good shape. The, the, um, the other thing I'll say is I'm a little more optimistic on, on vaccine uptake um, for a couple of reasons. There, um, there's, a, there's a nice graph from a pediatrics paper uh, from a couple of years back on vaccine hesitancy. Um, it, and vaccine hesitancy, of course, is sort of the, the, the nice way of saying, um, I'm not doing vaccines on time and I'm putting my anti-vax, kids- Anti-vax, yeah. Yeah, anti-vax, or I'm putting my kids and my neighbor's life at risk because I read something on the internet. <laughs> um, so we call that 
vaccine hesitancy. And what's interesting is there are, uh, there are opportunities for us uh, in moments like this. So the, when, when, a, when a virus or a pathogen is going crazy and you have no vaccine, well, no one knows about a vaccine. And then what happens is the vaccine comes online and there's some uptake and then over time it kind of gets into the vaccine schedules and, and people are interested in this and they go along with it and then they take it for granted. And so then there's like, oh, I'm not gonna vax my kid because I read that that could cause something like that I don't want. And so then, then locally there's a, there's a decrease in vaccination, usually around Whole Foods, right? There's like a, there's a whole statistic <laughs> about if you live near a Whole Foods, you are more likely to not vaccinate your kids. Um, it's actually interesting. It's, it's actually, it's, it's, it, it's, it's far left and far right. So it's actually across the political spectrum. Right. Um, so you have the, the right wing, like leave me, leave, go away from your needles people on the right. Like they don't want to be touched by the government. And then on the left, there's like this sort of like, yeah, well, you know, this acorn could actually protect me and I'm going to eat that instead because I read from Gwyneth Paltrow that like, you know, that'll save me from this. So, mm. um, so then of course people, they take it for granted because they don't see measles and mumps. And then there's, a, and then there's an outbreak. And an outbreak happens, and that's your moment of opportunity because suddenly everyone's like, "Oh, I don't want my child to die. This this is serious business." Um, so you know what that vaccine that we're behind on? Let me call my doc and get my kid caught up. And so this is opportunity during an outbreak to sort of eradicate. So you get the viruses or these pathogens to low levels, and, and then 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 there's a there's a little decrease in interest in the vaccine. There's a, there's an outbreak. People say, "Oh, wow, this is real," and then you can actually eradicate. And so that's what I'm hoping happens here is that people will be um, really glad to notice that oh, um, people are taking this vaccine. No one's dying. Uh, in fact, people are fewer people are dying of COVID. And so I think the numbers where they say, "Oh, four in ten Americans would take the vaccine," I think they're going to go higher than that. And I think we're going to get there because enough will take it. And on top of it, we'll have enough. We don't have herd immunity, but you know, whatever. We have to get the 75% of the country has to have antibodies, right? Probably 10% or 12% or 15% will have it from having gotten it. And then now we're just left with having to get about 60% of everyone else, you know? And so then you're there. So I think we're going to be able to do it if, if antibodies last at all for more than 20 minutes. That's what I'm going to say. That, that's the hesitancy I have and why I'm concerned is I don't believe we're going to get sterilizing immunity to this like we do with like a polio or something, polio vaccine. I think it's probably going to be closer to a flu vaccine. If that's the case and people need to re-up it every year or if there's a two-shot, three-shot process, that's going to be the real challenge is getting Americans to do it consistently. You're totally right. Here in California, you go to Marin County where it's sort of affluent, rich, left-leaning people or parts of Southern California where it's the same. It's as bad, if not worse, than other parts of, of, of the, the world. I think, though, the anti-vax thing has been sort of co-opted by the right now and like there's evidence of these Russian troll farms the, the online putting out misinformation about it too. So that's a whole other thing to deal with. But that's what I'm worried about is the long term. If this is something that's going to be a recurring endemic problem, that's going to be a problem. We're going to have like cold flu Corona season because people aren't taking their vaccines. And, and yeah. I see that, that happening. No. That, that's, that's, that, that's highly possible. And I, I, I guess I, I haven't been thinking a lot about that because I don't want to. Um, it just hurts too much uh, to think about that. What I would at least say to that is at some point, um, then you, you've minimized the number of people who don't control their own destiny. What right. sucks right now is this, this, you hear this argument like, well, hey, you know, I don't have to wear a seatbelt, you know, because that doesn't, you know, that doesn't kill you if I don't wear a seatbelt. Well, first of all, that is not true. By the way, if you don't wear a seatbelt and you get in a crash, you actually are less likely to control your car and you're going to kill more people. So seatbelts actually don't just hurt you. They hurt the other cars around you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a common misconception. Um, but also right now, it's like if you don't get vaccinated, but I haven't had a chance to get it, you can give it to me. Right. Over time, you can at least say, well, these yahoos who don't want to have the vaccine, like they can seal their own fate um, and I'll be fine because I, I'm, I'm on top of it. Uh, the, the, then you're dealing with the situation of which we have now, which is the sort of who are the people who have true contraindications to vaccination, and now your twisted idea of what liberty is is now putting that child or that cancer patient at risk. And I honestly think that, and I've never seen this case, but I've always wanted to see it because I think it would make sense. If someone were to die of like measles, because the neighbors didn't want to get vaccinated and they should, and, and, the, and, the, and the person who died like had a condition where they couldn't get vaccinated. 
yeah. the, the neighbors ought to be held liable for wrongful death. Like they ought to sue the pants off of them. Yeah. And, and I think that would be a nice a precedent establishing case, which would say, yeah, you know what? You can gamble with your own money and not, and not our lives. So yeah. I think that, you know, if we're going to have a tragedy like that, we might as well um, kind of yeah. use it to, 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 to prevent that from happening. No, for sure. If the Supreme Court, though, uh, <laughs> goes the way we say. think it's going to, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, they're preserving life. Like it's pro, it's a pro-life court. Vaccine mandates have been looked at, right? I, I was talking to Kimmy Chernobyl about this. Kimmy is MDJD who um, started Brief 19 with me and is now not working with us because she's uh, working for the Senate um, committee on this and no longer can. So uh, that's a reasonable reason for her to not uh, brief. <laughs> that's everything. It's like, a good yeah. excuse. It's a good excuse. Fair, fair. Um, but Dr. Chernovy, Kimmy was um, was pointing out to you that this has been this has been litigated. Like ma- vaccine mandates are 100% seen as constitutional. Um, we can enforce it. I, I think the idea is you just don't want to get there. Like this, it's never good to have to mandate these kinds of things. Right. It's always better just to get people to do it because they actually um, have been educated and have don't and, and don't want to hurt people. And I, I think that's the better way to get there. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff about vaccines and we've obviously mentioned hydroxychloroquine and there's a lot. And, you know, we were talking earlier before the episode about, you know, the debate tonight and truth telling and, and lies. What is, what is the biggest lies out there on the internet about COVID and maybe the numbers and the, the data and the deaths and things like that? Two tied for first answers. Yeah. Um, if one is that, that the I, that shelter in place can harm people and can cause deaths, and I I want to point out something that we should be very humble about as physicians, and that is we don't save a lot of lives, and I say this as an emergency physician who trained at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens where they save a lot of lives, and in Mount Sinai, and I'm you know at Brigham, and I work in the community as well. Um, we the, the number of modifiable deaths that that is deaths that we can prevent is very, very small. And other than that, we're just providing sort of good care for people. But I think that we have it in our minds that we're like heroes who save lives every day. And I just don't think that. And, and the reason I know that is if you look at the sort of the, 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 the big killers, the modifiable killers, the things we can intervene on, um, the, the number of patients we need to treat to save a single life is pretty high. So I'll take the classic example. If you have a type one, myocardial infarction, a big, bad ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction, a STEMI. This is like the EKG makes you want to vomit and the patient looks terrible and they have an occluded artery in their coronaries and they need to have that sucker opened. Uh, aspirin and getting them to a stent in, on time does help, but you have to get about 10 patients to save a single life for that. And that's the big bad one. So that means that of all the patients who come up with chest pain, which of them are actually having a heart attack, a small number, which of them are having a heart attack that actually has a life-saving intervention that we can provide today. And it, you get into fractions of fractions of fractions. And pretty soon what you realize is, wait a minute, during the shutdown, like there weren't that many people, there weren't that many cases to have occurred, right? So it's not that the heart attacks weren't happening at home. First of all, they probably weren't happening. I can t- talk about that for a second. And, and second, even if they were, the number of deaths that it would be would be this little blip on the radar compared to COVID. So the biggest myth that I've been trying to fight, and I have a bunch of research coming down on this, um, is the shelter in place uh, that people die for lack of seeing you and me for care. It's just, sorry to say guys, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and, I can, and I've actually designed a couple of experiments that I think are really cool that I can nerd out with you guys about to, to explain why I think that. And the other one that I think is also really important um, is around suicides and shelter in place and that the deaths of despair went up and people were saying, oh, people died during the shelter in place. And um, what I can tell you is in Massachusetts, which had one of the longest shelter in place policies anywhere in the United States, suicides are flat during the shutdown. Um, that's, that's data that I'll be publishing pretty soon. And the, the, that's, that's March, April, and May during the shutdown. And then June, we don't know yet. Uh, June, we open up. I assume that sh- uh, suicides will go up over time, especially in areas that are hardest hit economically. 
but in the short term, there's actually, there's actually like a honeymoon phase. Like we're all in this together. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm miserable and lonely and my prospects aren't good, but the government's sending me money and we're all in this together. And, we're, and there's a sense of um, national sort of pr almost pride or, or purpose. You see this after ecological events, um, that there's a short-term decrease in suicides. And then if there's not a good economic recovery, you see an increase. And so what I think we're going to see is in places with the longest shutdowns, the suicides are the lowest. And then, which is ironic, everyone thinks it's the other way around. And so the idea is that deaths of despair and the idea of um, lost lives due to uh, missed opportunities to come into the ED or to the hospital, um, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't add up. So the reason I care about this is in the future, when another outbreak happens, we, the, nothing will be different, right? It will be, the only thing that could be possibly different than, than this time is we could have a travel ban sooner, which we, you know, we, we had it pretty soon, but we didn't, we weren't comprehensive. And two, we could have testing capacity on day one but there's no there's no vaccine coming sooner there's no therapeutics are coming sooner like it would just be the same right and so we the only thing we can do is the same thing we did in 1918 same thing we tried to do this time the same thing that new zealand did successfully so far which is to shut the hell down and what i want people to know is that it's safe yeah so you're saying that over these those few months that you were studying suicides were the same or maybe or maybe less and there was no increase in mortality because shelter in place did not mean people were neglecting themselves as far as medical concerns or emergency room visits, for example, or hospital visits. Is this a plug for preventative health care? Is that it what I'm totally, hearing? Okay. Totally as an is. ER doctor, I don't know that you know about like, you know, hypertension and cholesterol and diabetes and Wait, weight loss. Think, I'm just, treating? just they're the ones treating all that. Those people don't have no. doctors. They're, they're going well, to the emergency room for that. But emergency room docs are treating are the terrible consequences of these things but we all know and i just want to plug and i'm being silly and you know huh. slightly condescending and intentionally but that if we were to prevent you know some of these diseases from showing up to the er treat them with really good primary care and prevention then you know we'd have very similar outcomes that people do not need emergency room for no yeah, no no doctor visits. Um, we we would love to be obsolete and or, or use less um, we have plenty to do um, we're not trying to drum up business and, and it's, um, it totally, oh, so I, I want to just point out one thing because the idea that, that people will say, wait a minute, but I read that there were fewer heart attacks during the shutdown. And so they must've happened at home. And that's an assumption that you can't make. It, it's, it's equally possible. And I actually think it is what happened is that they didn't happen as often because people were home. They weren't stressed out at work. They were anxious, but anxious and stress are different. They're different, I think they're different hormonal accesses. They weren't eating out. They weren't um, having stress. There wasn't pollution, by the way. We see epidemiological studies showing that on bad pollution days, there are more strokes. There are more um, COPD exacerbations, which are more heart attacks. So I actually think that there were fewer triggers. And here's my ultimate proof on this, other than the data. I can actually show you state by state. Um, but think about this. In this country, the number of excess deaths that we've had, like the, the number of deaths more than we should have, um, has vastly, vastly been concentrated among black and Latino populations, right? I mean, as you say, these are people who don't have primary care as often. So if when they do get hit by COVID, they're more likely to have bad outcome, right? There's structural forces that screws them yet again. Yes. And we need to work on that, right? And this is a great example. This crisis is a great example of learning that the hard way, right? Um, if it were the case that decreases in emergency care were responsible for those deaths, you would have to admit that you would see in the data that those were the populations who used ERs less during the shutdown, right? Make sense? Oh yeah, these people aren't coming into the ER and they're, therefore they're dying more. That's why they keep dying. Well, here's the thing. The rates of ER use among all races went, by, went down by the exact same amount. So it's just the same as usual, but just less. So if that's the case, um, why are they, why is it this huge disproportionate, essentially discrimination and death among black and Latino people? The answer is because COVID, not because they're not going to the ER for the heart attacks. Do, do you feel like we can say that now, or do you feel like we need more time to really tease out excess mortality? Do we need, we need to see like next year's mortality compared to this one compared to the year before? Do you feel like we're able to make these, I mean, obviously, we're going to have more information over time, but do you feel like that's the numbers are strong enough to show that now? Yeah, they are. And it's going to be really interesting next year because we've lost a ton of lives who, who are supposed to quote unquote, supposed to have died later. So over a period of time, 
there will actually be a negative deflection. There'll be there'll be negative excess deaths. Negative excess yeah. deaths because all these people who should be around, um, right, ten, who are going to die ten years from now, they're right. dying now. They're already gone, and it, it, or even the even the older folks who have like two years of life left as of today, they get COVID and die tomorrow. Um, the, the, the next president is going to look great, by the way, because they are going to be like, hey, look, we have the lowest death rates ever. And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, everyone's already iced, you jerks. Like, <laughs> everyone's dead. So um, we already have enough. And what's really interesting is nothing's going to change the following. Um, and this is another part of the argument about the, about the heart disease deaths, and it's true of, of, of a lot of other causes of death as well. Um, you do see this article that say, oh, there were increases in Alzheimer's deaths and increases in diabetes deaths and increases in heart disease deaths in New York and New Jersey. Um, well, guess what, folks? It was only in New York and New Jersey and only at the, at the height of COVID. And everywhere else in the country where there wasn't excess deaths from uh, period in COVID, but there was a huge decrease in ER care, there was no change in deaths. So everything's flat everywhere else. So we actually know this. Um, what I think is going to be really challenging about the way you, related to your question is to know when we're out of this thing. Because I wrote early on, you know, look, excess deaths are how you track this. You, it's hard. To, it, it's at some point you could you could delude yourself and you say, oh look, you know, we have uh, 500 deaths a day from COVID, 300 deaths a day from COVID. At some point, when you have no more excess deaths, you do not know whether it's business as usual and COVID is getting the blame or if it's actually like excess. Mm -hmm. And it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And of course now um, with uh, all the people dead who should be alive, it would be really easy to be fooled into thinking, oh, we're back to normal. When in fact the true expectation next year is lower than it was last year. So 2019 was sort of a baseline. And then, but whatever we're supposed to have in 2022 be better than 2019, right? Because yeah. so we need to actually be very careful about risk adjusting so that we look at demographics. Um, so I'm actually a little worried that we will um, we will not detect this thing is still going on when it still is. Right. Oh man, the epidemiologists are going to have the and you you're going to have your work cut out for you when you try to parse through some of that data. Um, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I'm looking forward to seeing some of this stuff come out and seeing what you're working on. Um, I, but there's let let me. Let's close up, but before we uh, we do, I um I have one more question for you, and this is mostly just out of my own curiosity. You have an interest. You're on television all the time. You're doing like CNN, Rachel Maddow, whatever, and uh, not whatever. I mean, they're all fantastic. I don't mean like that. I mean, whatever. Like, awesome. Whatever. Like all these whatever. great shows, but you have an interesting technique to prepare you before you you do it. Can you explain to us and to our audience what you do to prepare to prepare yourself before you go on air? Yeah. Um, so I started doing TV really for the first time in like March and I would get so nervous and I just, just my heart would just be pounding and I'd be like tachycardic. My heart would be like 110 and, um, and I'm definitely a fast talker. So it's really bad. Um, so I would just, what I would do is what's called a Valsalva, which is basically um, a way to slow down your heart rate. And the way I would do it, the way I do it is to take like a fist and to blow against pressure, it like look like make your your cheeks look like um, you know like a trumpet player. Although that's not a good trumpet technique, but um, it's kind of like blow up, puff out your cheeks like a puffer fish and kind of blow into your fist, like you know. Um, and if you do that, um, other Valsalva techniques are sort of like you know pretending like you're having a bowel movement. Um, you can do carotid massage in your neck, and that that really lowers your heart rate quickly, um, and it works really well. And I will tell you, it works so well that I almost passed out once. <laughs> right before going on with Wolf Blitzer and I've never passed out in my life and I was like really woozy and because after a while I got a little used to it but Wolf Blitzer would make me so effing nervous this is Wolf Blitzer <laughs> yeah, no. when I was a teenager when I was a teenager we like went to Atlanta and like toured CNN and he was like on I'm like oh my god Wolf Blitzer and now I'm like on TV talking to him it's one thing to have some person you've been watching a couple of years but Wolf Blitzer I was so yeah. nervous. So yeah, that was it. Um, so it works really well. And now I get less nervous, but I still do it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, Can I say one other thing, by the way? Yeah, was, wait, wait. Is it that Wolf Blitzer is a dick? No. Actually, <laughs> just that, kidding. That, you, know, you heard it thing. here, folks. You heard it here. Can I just, okay, first, I have to answer that. Wolf Blitzer turns out to be one of the nicest ones. They're all nice. 
but none of them do what he does, which is every time you go on the show, during the commercial break, he'll come on off the air and say, hello, thanks for doing this. How you doing? Chit chat. And then he wants you to stay on after to say thanks. And oh. I think he's the only anchor other than one other um, who always does that. That's and he doesn't sweet. have to. It's really nice. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Lizzie, you asked about um, something about how, like, um, what are the misconceptions? And one of the other ones I wanted to put out there, because this is, I said I had two answers. My other one was that we have to play nice. Um, and uh, because I think there's this, like, there's this image of a doctor who's, like, got the white coat on and the tie or whatever else professional attire you may have. Um, short, short, short skirt for women. Yeah, exactly. I, I leave those kinds of decisions to you. Um, the, that we have to have this decorum and that we can't be ourselves. And I think that authenticity is actually really undervalued. And so what I have, it, this is correlating with me becoming fed up with, with BS, but I've begun to be not nice. And that is on Twitter and that is by design. So I've been going after a few, a few people that I consider to be truly awful. And, and including this guy with a Nobel laureate, he's a Nobel laureate, and he, he puts that fact in his profile. He says his, his actual profile now has NP, Nobel Prize, like as part of his app, like at, you know? And I'm like, really? Okay, and if you're gonna do that, you can't be that wrong about everything. You cannot, so I'm doing, it's what I'm doing what amounts to ad hominem attacks on this guy, which is sort of off limits. And I figured out why. It's because he's performing a daily ad hominem attack on the Nobel Prize. And I am trying to defend against that. So I'm, I stopped being, so I, I decided that, so to me, it's not true for everyone, but, for, but, but the misconception is that you can't be yourself. Be yourself, be angry. I'm swearing on Twitter, I'm calling people names because there needs to be, I think, a conversational intolerance for ideas that are so bad and so poorly vetted that we can't just fight them on the facts. We have to do both. We have to fight them on the facts and expose them for the absolutely horrific, like intellectually deplorable, like jerks that they are. And so I am tired of being nice. So that's the other one. I appreciate right. your saltiness. And that's one of the best reasons to follow you on Twitter. Can you tell people um, how to do that? Where you're, uh, what your uh, title is? Your, or what's it called? Your handle? What, tell people my what your handle, handle is. My handle is, is very simple, at Jeremy Faust. So nice. it's just my name. And occasionally people will, will, will question me on that. And I just have no room for it. Um, and then we're also, the blog um, is at brief underscore 19. And I'm so uh, proud of the docs who, who write that. And um, it's, it's good stuff. And, and for any of your listeners who love to write about policy and research, we're always looking for a good writer. Um, one of the fun parts is we get embargoes of um, major journal articles so we can see what's coming down the pipeline. So uh, if, you, if you're into keeping secrets um, and, uh, and you can write, we have, we have a spot for you. Very cool. <laughs> For All free. Well, we'll uh, make sure we have links out for that. And I really do recommend following Dr. Faust uh, on Twitter. He's a really great source of fun information, really accurate, up-to-date stuff. And uh, thank you so much for everything you're doing, both in the ERs and, you know, um, on our TV screen. So we appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Finally. Yeah, I know. I'm so glad you came on. Thanks. Nice use of the word mensch on Yom Kippur. Thank you. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.